Welcome back to the Convivial Society. In this installment, you'll find the audio version of two recent posts, The Pathologies of the Attention Economy and Impoverished Emotional Lives. I've not combined audio from two separate installments before, but the second is a short Is This Anything post, and I thought it would be fine to include it here. You can tell me otherwise. If you've been reading over the past few months, you know that I've gone back and forth on how best to deliver the audio, I've settled for now on this method, which is to send out a supplement to the text version of the essay. Because not everyone listens to the audio version, I'll include some additional materials, links, and resources so that the email is not without value for everyone. As always, thanks for listening. The Pathologies of the Attention Economy Allow me to take you on a brief historical journey with Yves Citon's The Ecology of Attention as Our Guide. The goal of the journey is twofold. First, to trace a trajectory which might illuminate our situation. Second, to observe a particular pattern worth considering. If you're reading this, you likely know that over the last decade, a great deal of attention has been paid to the problem of attention. A wide array of books, articles, essays, and documentaries have appeared to chronicle the disordered state of attention in an age of digital distraction, or something like that. As a matter of convenience, I sometimes use the phrase attention discourse to refer to all of this talk about attention. The curious thing about attention discourse is that it has been with us for longer than most would guess. Clearly, this most recent iteration is directly connected to the rise of digital media, but previous waves of attention discourse have preceded the advent of digital technology. Many of you reading this will be old enough to remember, for example, an earlier cycle of attention discourse in the 1980s centered on the rise of attention deficit disorder, or ADD, diagnoses, which were sometimes linked in the discourse to electronic, not digital media, specifically television. We'll come back to ADD, ADHD before we're done, but let me get on with the historical sketch first. Citone reminds us of Michael Goldhaber, who in a series of essays in the late 1990s argued that a new attention economy was emerging alongside the traditional economy of goods and services. Ours is not truly an information economy, Goldhaber claimed. Economics, he went on to explain, is the study of how a society uses its scarce resources. And information is not scarce, especially on the net, where it is not only abundant but overflowing. We are drowning in information, yet constantly increasing our generation of it. So a key question arises. Is there something else that flows through cyberspace, something that is scarce and desirable? There is. No one would put anything on the internet without the hope of obtaining some. It's called attention. And the economy of attention, not information, is the natural economy of cyberspace. Early in 2021, Charlie Warzel drew our attention to Goldhaber's predictions and opened his column by describing Goldhaber as the internet prophet you've never heard of. I'm sure this came as no surprise to Goldhaber, who appears to have sensed that in the attention economy, fame would be even more short-lived than it was in the televisual age. Incidentally, I wrote an installment of this newsletter in response to Warzel's discussion of Goldhaber's predictions. This is, after all, the way the discourse works. In any case, that earlier installment, Your Attention is Not a Resource, is, in my view, still pretty good. As Wurzel and Goldhaber acknowledged, 
the phrase attention economy dates back to an even earlier age. As Citone noted, Herbert Simon is widely regarded as the father of the attention economy. At a conference in 1969, Simone observed that the wealth of information means a dearth of something else, a scarcity of whatever it is the information consumes. What information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Incidentally, this is an important principle which seems deceptively obvious, but the implications of which are not always taken into account. Shifts from scarcity to abundance radically alter whatever natural or social landscape we happen to be considering. For example, many of the debates about journalism often fail to reckon with the basic fact of information superabundance. Before coming back to Citone's historical survey, I'll insert what I consider to be two mid-century literary contributions to attention discourse. The first is a 1961 short story written by the American author Kurt Vonnegut. Harrison Bergeron, is set in a dystopian future where equality is enforced by totalitarian means. The physically gifted, for example, were burdened with weights so as to neutralize their natural advantages. The advantages of the intellectually gifted were neutralized by other means. Of one such character, the narrator explains that he was required by law to wear a radio in his ear at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. Upon reading this story a dozen years ago, it immediately struck me as an Orwellian anticipation of what, in fact, played out along Huxleyan lines. Our regimen of stochastic distraction tends to be freely chosen rather than tyrannically imposed. I'm not sure to what degree Vonnegut was specifically interested in or responding to dynamics in the ecology of attention, but Ray Bradbury, writing a few short years earlier, does seem to be more keenly attuned to the dynamics that characterize contemporary attention discourse. The only time I'm ever really tempted to drop in actually on someone is when I feel compelled to say, actually Fahrenheit 451 isn't really about censorship. I'll resist the temptation to go down that path here. Suffice it to say that all the action in the book is triggered by one simple question. Are you happy? For our purposes here, I'll also note that Bradbury's book is about an imposed and willful alienation from the world affected by media technologies. One scene in particular speaks directly to the question of attention. In it, the protagonist is trying desperately to commit to memory a passage of a book he must shortly surrender to the authorities. But his efforts are undone, by an incessant advertising jingle blaring over the loudspeaker on the train he is riding. I think of this scene whenever I'm pumping gas and the screen on the pump starts up with a series of 20-second video ads. The explicit link Bradbury drew between attention and advertising is a good segue back to Citone's account of the history of attention discourse. Citone introduced me to the work of Gabriel Tardet, a French sociologist who died in 1904. Two years before his death, Tardet published Economic Psychology, which anticipated the dynamics of what we know as the attention economy. Here is Citone summarizing Tardet's insights. Tardet understood immediately the extent to which advertising, necessary for the absorption of excess goods coming from industrial overproduction, needed to be considered in terms of attention. Interrupting attention, fixing it on the thing being proffered, 
is the immediate and direct effect of advertising. He sensed perfectly the contagious implications of this. It is not just the fourth page of newspapers that is made up of advertisements. The whole body of the paper is one big, continuous, and general advertisement. Then there is this intriguing tidbit from Tardet about the need, as Citon puts it, for new tools capable of measuring the attentional flux which simultaneously indicate and structure our daily interactions. The need for a famometer becomes even more apparent when celebrities of every kind are more abundant, more sudden, and more fleeting, and when, despite their habitual impermanence, they do not fail to be accompanied by a formidable power, since they are a good for the possessor, but a light, a faith, for society. One might frame the expansive digital data-gathering apparatus as a response to just this need for a famometer. One imagines that this was, in French, a more elegant term. There's one more insight from Tardet via Citone that is worth mentioning and with which we can begin to transition from the trajectory to the pattern. Describing Tardet's work again, Citone observes that problems of attention are intimately connected with the establishment of the machinofacture peculiar to the industrial mode of production, imposing on the worker an exhaustion of attention that is a new subtler form of torture unknown to the crude purgatories of earlier times. That last rhetorical flourish may ring a bit hollow in our ears, and of course conditions have not remained static in the ensuing century, but the underlying dynamic has remained relatively consistent. When we push back to the origins of attention discourse in the 19th century, we find that attention becomes a problem to be theorized in the context of, first, the need to market a new abundance of consumer goods, and second, when new forms of industrial labor required new modes of discipline to treat the inattention of the worker tasked with performing the same repetitive actions throughout the workday. These roots of attention discourse are also highlighted in Jonathan Crary's Suspensions of Perception, Attention, Spectacle, and Modern Culture. As Crary documented, much of the early research on attention in the 19th century was initially bound up in the need for information on attention in the context of rationalizing production. But, as he goes on to add, even as early as 1910, hundreds of experimental laboratory studies had been done specifically on the range of attention in advertising. Typical articles included the attention value of periodical advertisements, attention and the effects of size in streetcar advertisements, advertising and the laws of mental attention, and measuring the attention value of color in advertising. Query argued that since the late 19th century, we have been confronted by a constant recreation of the conditions of sensory experience in what could be called a revolutionizing of the means of perception. According to Crary, the problem of attention was a problem whose centrality was directly related to the emergence of a social, urban, psychic, and industrial field increasingly saturated with sensory input. Inattention, especially within the context of new forms of large-scale industrialized production, began to be treated as a danger and a serious problem, even though it was the very modernized arrangements of labor that produced inattention. 
Thus, Crary argued, it is possible to see one crucial aspect of modernity as an ongoing crisis of attentiveness, in which the changing configurations of capitalism continually push attention to new limits and thresholds with an endless sequence of new products, sources of stimulation, and streams of information, and then respond with new methods of managing and regulating perception. While the particulars have evolved over time, I think we will find that this pattern has remained relatively consistent. Consider how Citone frames the problem of ADD or ADHD in the 1980s and 90s. Citone notes that ADHDs are rooted in a disorder which is individualized, personalized, or more precisely, neurologized, and a deficit. The neurons do not work quickly enough. Note that Citone placed quotation marks around both disorder and deficit. So it is not surprising, he goes on to write, that, starting in the USA, the main and most obvious way of managing the disease is the broad distribution of Ritalin to a whole section of the young. For a neurological disorder, a medicinal solution. The problem, in his view, is that this ignores the acceleration in communication, new media apparatuses, and information overload. It ignores, in short, the whole evolution of the configurations of capitalism highlighted by Jonathan Crary, which continually push attention to new limits and thresholds. Citone's point at this juncture in his argument is that we should avoid framing the problem of attention as a problem individuals experience independently of their technosocial environment. From the ongoing crisis of attentiveness initiated in populations and lifestyles at least 150 years ago, Citone observes, only subject individuals remain who are pathologized for not paying attention to detail, being distracted by external stimuli, or having difficulty waiting their turn. He then goes on to starkly frame the outcome of this development. As a consequence of this individualization of behaviors, we use chemistry to compel our children's attention, as well as our own, at all costs, to bend to the unprecedented, completely artificial, and terribly invasive needs of a Janus-faced capitalism, which simultaneously advocates relentless productive discipline and limitless consumerist hedonism. For my part, I would be hesitant to characterize the situation of every person who has been diagnosed with ADD, ADHD in this way. I've learned in listening to others tell their stories over the years that, however thick or compelling the theoretical framework may be, it will not account for all of the nuances and idiosyncrasies of human experience. I do think, however, that we need to consider the patterns Sutone and Crary have each in their own way identified. I would describe the pattern this way. First, we inhabit a technosocial environment manufactured to fracture our attention. Second, the interests served by this environment in turn pathologize the resultant inattention. And thirdly, these same interests devise and enforce new techniques to discipline the inattentive subject. As a more contemporary example of this dynamic, consider the recent experience with online schooling during the pandemic. When schooling was moved online, attention once more became a problem. Of course, many questioned the wisdom of demanding that children, especially young children, sit at a computer for several hours per day. But others saw an opportunity to develop and market various forms of attention monitoring software. 
This analysis should at least encourage us to ask new questions about our own struggles with attention and distraction. If there is a problem with attention, what are its sources? Do I conceptualize the problem of attention as a failure of the individual or as a failure of the technosocial environment? Who or what demands my attention and to what end? If I undertake a therapy of attention, in the interests of whom do I undertake it? Do my efforts to discipline my attention simply serve the interests of the system that has generated the problem in the first place? Or do they aim at a modest liberation from that system, reaching toward genuine human goods? Can we cultivate the skill of attending to the world for the sake of the world and those with whom we share it? The most succinct statement of the pattern we've been observing was given by the social critic Ivan Illich. Contemporary man, Illich observed, attempts to create the world in his image, to build a totally man-made environment, and then discovers that he can do so only on the condition of constantly remaking himself to fit it. This dynamic is everywhere on display as soon as you begin to notice it. We will not, by our individual actions, undo a technosocial order that is inhospitable to human beings given the sorts of creatures we are, communal, embodied, mortal, etc. But we can become more alert to how we might have internalized the demands of our milieu and judged ourselves or others for supposed failures, failures which are in reality the product of a social order that treats the person as a mere component in a system ordered toward economic ends. Only then might we undertake a meaningful therapy of attention, whose rewards may very well be illegible to the order whose demands have structured our attention, and for that reason, be ours to enjoy in earnest. And now, from attention to the emotions. This next post should be filed under the Is This Anything category. One unpolished idea for your consideration in roughly 500 words, give or take. In this case, I'm entertaining the possibility that we feel too little rather than too much. Impoverished emotional lives. From one perspective, you could argue that ours is an excessively emotional age. Outrage and fear are the currency of public discourse. Thoughtfulness and reason appear to be in retreat. But from another angle, I'm tempted by a different proposition. Maybe it is actually the case that our emotional lives are impoverished. The following observations circle around this proposition. I have sometimes argued that in the context of social media, affect overload is just as much of a problem as information overload. It is the emotional register that accounts for the Pavlovian alacrity with which we attend to our devices and digital flows for which they are a portal, I observed in 2017. Twitter says, feel this, we say, how intensely. Social media never invites us to step away, to think and reflect, to remain silent, to refuse a response for now or maybe indefinitely. That still seems basically right to me, but I don't think I adequately accounted for the quality of the emotional experience. I'm wondering now whether the problem is not that I'm called upon to feel too much, but that I am not allowed to feel enough, to feel deeply and at length. The rhythms of digital media rush me on from crisis to crisis, from outrage to outrage. 
Moreover, in rapid succession, the same feed brings to me the tragic and the comic, as well as the trivial and the consequential. So it's not just that I do not have the time or space to think deeply. I also do not have the time or space to feel deeply. I skim the surface of each emotional experience, but rarely can I plumb its depths or sound out its meaning. Consequently, I lose something of the richness of the emotions and miss out on their appropriate consolations. I feel enough to be overwhelmed and depleted, but I cannot inhabit an emotional experience long enough to see it through to its natural fulfillment with whatever growth of character or richness of experience that might entail. I think, for example, of the contrast afforded by elaborate forms of mourning and celebration in traditional cultures, forms and rituals that unfolded across days and weeks. By contrast, my emotional life is channeled far more narrowly by digital media. I enjoy neither the time such customs might have afforded me, nor their wider array of expressive forms, silence, presence, gesture, touch, etc. As an aside, I'm tempted to argue that we already set off on the wrong path when we began to talk about emotions as something to be processed. It's been observed that part of the problem with online discourse is that it detaches from the ostensible object of analysis and devolves into discourse about itself. Similarly, emotions detach from their proper object and attach to the discourse and its participants. This may explain the often bizarre disproportionality of emotional expressions online. The policing of others' emotional expressions is one sign that the discourse is colonizing our emotional life. Such policing tends to generate an artificiality of, usually negative or critical, emotional expression, and conditions us to avoid certain, usually positive or earnest, emotional expressions. Under these conditions, emotional life is stunted. The range of legible emotions is constricted. Complex or subtle emotional experiences are overwhelmed by the demand for intense and uncomplicated emotional expressions. The gist of all of this is that our emotional lives tend to be impoverished in an online context. This happens because the temporal rhythms of digital media are inhospitable to achieving a depth of emotional experience and because our emotional expressions are conditioned into a relatively narrow range. So, is this anything? Is it helpful? Does it resonate? Comments are open on this post, and I should add that they have been quite good. So you may want to click through and take a look at what some other readers have contributed to this discussion.